Okay, please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 11, Matthew chapter 6. Those will be our main texts. Once again, this morning, uh, last Sunday, I realized some of you may not have been here. We had several out at Camp Deer Run. We've had, you know, it's summertime, so we have people traveling vacation here and there. So let me just do a quick reminder. We started a, a short sermon series on prayer. We titled it, Teach Us to Pray, because that's the request that we see in Luke chapter 11. Teach us to pray. And so specifically, we talked about the Lord's Prayer. There's a guy named Mike Cope, who maybe that name sounds familiar to some of you. He was a preacher at the Highland Church of Christ in Abilene, Texas for about a decade. And he would start, he tells the story, he would start each church service by asking the congregation to stand And then everyone would say the Lord's Prayer together. And he went on and on like this for years. And then one mom came up to him one Sunday and told him that because he leads the church in the Lord's Prayer every Sunday, now her son wants to say the Lord's Prayer before uh, he goes to bed at night. And Mike said, well, that's great. And she said, well, there's only one problem. When he ends the prayer in his room, Praying beside his bed, he says, For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. You may be seated. (laughs) So because Mike would tell the congregation, you may be seated, this boy thought that that was also a part of the Lord's Prayer. That's how it ended. You know, we all kind of have a funny relationship with the Lord's Prayer. And last Sunday morning, I set up a defense of the Lord's Prayer. I set up an argument for the Lord's Prayer. I told you that reciting and saying and forming my prayer life around this prayer that Jesus taught for the last seven years has made a huge impact in my spiritual life and my relationship with God. And so I set up my argument for why I think the Lord's Prayer is crucial and we kind of, as a church heritage, kind of overlook it. And we don't pay much attention to it And so I'm not going to follow back on any of the argument stuff that I made from last Sunday. That's on the recording on our website, on our podcast, if you are interested in that. But we want to continue this discussion today, starting in Luke chapter 11 and verse 1. He was praying in a certain place, and after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. So Jesus is praying in a certain place. And what his disciples notice about him is the quantity and the quality of his prayer life. They see how habitually Jesus prays, and they see the kind of life that he's leading. And these disciples have grown up praying prayers, you know, we mentioned last week in synagogue and in the temple, and reciting the Psalms, and reciting the Shema every day. So they knew how to pray, but yet they still come up to Jesus and they say, teach us to pray, because we're all students of prayer. No matter how long you've been on this journey, how many prayers you've prayed in your life, we're all still like the disciples here in Luke chapter 11 verse 1 teach us to pray. We're all students of prayer. Nobody has mastered prayer. As one writer put it, we don't choose this prayer. This prayer chooses us. If we want to learn how to pray, and we want to follow Jesus in all areas of our life including how we pray, then this prayer chooses us. So the disciples say, teach us to pray. And just like most rabbis, he composed a prayer for his disciples. In verse 2, he says, When you pray, say, Father, 
hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we ourselves forgive everyone indebted to us. And do not bring us to the time of trial. Teach us to pray so he gives them a prayer. The other text I want to read this morning is what we read last week. It was our scripture reading from this morning, and that's from Matthew chapter 6. So this is the only other place in the Gospels where we have the Lord's Prayer. And it's in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus is talking about fasting and praying and giving and some of these acts of righteousness, or we might call them spiritual disciplines. And he's saying to do it in secret, not to be seen by others, but he's teaching on prayer. And in Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 9, he says, Pray then in this way, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us into the time of trial, but rescue us from the evil one. So traditionally, when we read Luke 11, we read Matthew 6, we combine the two, and that is what we call the Lord's Prayer, or what I might call the prayer that Jesus taught to his disciples. I don't know if this name sounds familiar to you, if this picture is somebody you've seen before, but this is a man named Dallas Willard. Anybody heard of Dallas Willard? All right, I see one, possibly two hands, but maybe because you feel bad for me because nobody else is raising their hands, but Dallas Willard is the late Dallas Willard. He was a philosophy professor at USC, a, a smart man in the academic world, but Dallas Willard was also, in some people's minds, kind of like a spiritual life guru. He was a follower of Jesus, and he felt that the spiritual disciplines were so crucial to anyone's life in following Jesus. So he wrote several books, and when I was in school, I had to read a lot of Dallas Willard books, and he's been influential on my life. And the story goes that one day he was teaching a very large class full of college students, and he gave them a chance to ask him questions. So somebody raised their hand, and they said, what's been one of the most important spiritual practices in your life? And Dallas Willard, he's a big name. People like to learn from him. So as soon as someone asked that question, everybody leaned forward with their pen in their hand, ready to write down whatever it was he was about to say. What's one of the most important spiritual practices in your life? And he said, every morning and every night, I pray through the Lord's Prayer, and I pray through the Shepherd's Prayer, Psalm 23. And he said, doing that for a number of years has changed my life. And everybody kind of sat back and they thought, well, that's it? And he said, praying through. The Lord's Prayer and Psalm 23, every day, praying it slowly, has changed his life more than anything. And for this sermon, we're not talking about Psalm 23, we're not talking about the Shepherd's Prayer, but we are focusing on the Lord's Prayer. And I would agree with Dallas Willard on that. In my own personal walk, praying the Lord's Prayer, letting those words kind of soak into your heart, and praying them slowly, And dwelling on what Jesus taught us to pray has changed my life. These words in the Lord's Prayer, something that maybe is familiar to you more out there than in here, these words are simple, but yet they're profound. So last week I challenged you to say this prayer every day for a week and say it slowly, and then maybe to see what's one area, a focus area that maybe God is calling you to really dwell on. 
So how often do we go through the Lord's Prayer and go through it slowly? So what I want to do right now is just combine Luke 11 and Matthew 6, and I want to talk about each line. So he begins the prayer by saying, Our Father. If you pray this prayer slowly and you say, Our Father, and you're reflecting on these words that Jesus teaches us to pray, my first question is, who is our? If you notice, the prayer is plural. It's not my father. And in, in Luke's version, in Luke 11, it just says father, depending on what English translation you're reading. But in Matthew's version, it says our father. But both in Luke and Matthew, it's give us our bread. Forgive us our sin. So it's not singular, it's plural. You know, so faith is personal, but it's not private. So when Jesus says our, he knows that it's not just about our spiritual time with him, and that's it, that faith is just private to us, and then we go live the rest of our lives. But, you know, faith is meant to be experienced with others. So he says, our Father, and an important question that's been a part of my life is, who is our? What does he mean by that? When we pray our Father, does that mean just people that we go to church with? Is that who our is? Is our just maybe people in our family? Is our those who look like us and think like us and would agree with things that we believe? Who is our? Well, if you're looking at Luke 11 and you're going to look at the context of Luke 11, just take a step back to the next chapter, Luke 10. In Luke 10, Jesus tells this parable that's famously known as the parable of the Good Samaritan. You do a little historical, cultural study on that, and you realize Jews hated Samaritans. Samaritans were of another race and religion. And yet Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan, and the Samaritan becomes the hero of the story. And then right after that, Jesus goes into the home of Mary and Martha, and he allows them to sit at his feet, taking on the posture of a disciple which rabbis would have never let women be disciples, but Jesus invites them to become disciples. So you see Samaritans and how inclusive Jesus is. You see these women, how inclusive he is, allowing them to become disciples. And it gives you a clue of what maybe Jesus means when he says, Our Father. So praying these two words, these last seven years of my life, has given me a sense of mission. And when you go into a public place, you can go into a restaurant or go into a school or somewhere where there'll be a lot of people and just pray those words, Our Father, and look around at all the people. Everybody that's there, everybody that you see, God desires to have a relationship with. God desires to be their Father. And I realize that Father can be difficult language for some people. You know, so many writers have said the way that we view God is based on our relationship with our earthly fathers, whether that's for the good or for the bad. But we need to be careful not to project our experiences with our earthly dads onto God, because as earthly dads, none of us will compare to our heavenly father. So we have a father, and he's not just my father, but he's our father. And then he says, our father who is in heaven. Now, you may just be thinking, well, duh, God is in heaven. We know that. But place yourself in the shoes of the original audience of those hearing this. And to them, the presence of God was in the temple in Jerusalem. 
You see, Jerusalem was a very unique city. It was, had this large temple for the one God and just kind of had a city around the temple. But most other ancient cities had temples all over it because they believed in multiple gods. But for the Jews, with their monotheistic view, they would go into the temple to meet God, to sacrifice to God, to receive forgiveness of their sins. The temple was the place to be, but Jesus says, Our Father who is in heaven... And through Jesus, heaven is much closer, much more accessible than maybe we could have ever imagined. So our Father who is in heaven reminds us of proper place, that we're on earth. He is in heaven, but he's come near to us. And our Father who is in heaven reminds us that our view is myopic. We're nearsighted. As human beings, we have a tendency of looking at the world through our own experiences. And our own experiences are limited, but God sees everything, right? So his view, God who is in heaven, he's not limited to our worldview. So when we pray this prayer, our Father who is in heaven, we are submitting to a God who sees much more than we do, and we're trusting our lives into his hands. Our Father who is in heaven, holy is your name, or hallowed be your name. That's the third line of the Lord's Prayer. Now, if you're a student of the Bible, you might immediately think of Exodus chapter 3. When Moses sees the burning bush, and that's God right there speaking to him, calling Moses to go to his people in Egypt and bring them out of slavery. Moses wants to know, what's your name? Who do I tell the people sent me? And then he says, I am who I am. That's Exodus 3, 13 and 14. This is where we get the sacred name Yahweh. So he gives Moses his name. God has a name, and he has graciously given us that name. And then in the Ten Commandments, what does he say about his name? Do not take my name in vain. Do not misuse my name. And then a lot of us have problems with that because we see in our culture all the time people that will use God as a form of cussing or venting or whatever it may be. And we kind of flippantly toss around God's name. But in the Jewish context, they would have viewed God's name with total reverence. I had a professor when I was at ACU. His name was Tony Ash. He was one of my favorite teachers, the late Tony Ash. I took him four different times for four different classes. That's how much I enjoyed being in his class. But every time he taught on the Lord's Prayer, he reminded us that the Greek here, where it says, holy is your name, how would be your name, is in the form of a request. So you could literally translate it, make holy your name. Meaning that God's holiness, because of God's holiness, we should honor his name. So the way that we live our lives, the way that we talk and act, our passions, our hobbies, the way we interact with people out in the world, is a reflection of what we believe and so who we are as followers of Jesus, we should be honoring his name. So our Father who is in heaven, holy is your name. So this is the first part of the prayer. And maybe you've heard this before, but the first part of this prayer is about adoration. It's all about God. Now think about your own prayer life, and I'm thinking about mine too. Often when I pray, especially when something's really on my heart and on my mind, my first inclination 
is to say, Lord, I need this, this, and that. We don't very often start our prayers the way that Jesus teaches us to start our prayers. And the way that he started this prayer is it was all focused on God. God knows who he is. So does God need to be reminded your name is holy, you're in heaven? Well, maybe the first part of this prayer is for us because we, needed, we need to be reminded that God's name is holy. And he's our father, not my father, and he's in heaven. And the second part of this prayer is about mission. Some people would say the second part of this prayer is about acceptance, if you were going with words that start with an A. But I think the second part of this prayer starts with mission. What does he say next? You know it. Your what? Your kingdom come. Everybody say that. Your kingdom come. So that's the next part of the prayer. We focused on this for a little bit last week. Jesus lived in a world in the shadow of a lot of kingdom movement. Sixty years before Jesus was born, the Romans had come into his homeland and taken it over. And you know, you had Caesar as the Roman emperor. And the land in which Jesus lived, you had Herod the Great when he was young. And then by the time he was an adult, you had Herod's sons acting as kings of the Jews. And then he even dealt with politicians like Pilate. So Jesus lived in a world full of kingdoms. And early on in Jesus' ministry, in Luke 4, he goes out in the wilderness, and when he's out there, he's tempted by Satan. And one of the things that Satan tempts him with is, I can give you all the kingdoms of the world. How Satan has the power to do that, we don't know, but that's a temptation he gives Jesus. And Jesus denies that, because Jesus is coming to establish a new and a different kind of kingdom. And then later in Luke, he's talked about the kingdom so much. Kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is near. He talks about the kingdom so much that in Luke 17, some of the teachers of the law, they want to know where and when. When can we see this kingdom coming? And in Luke 17, verse 20 and 21, he said, The kingdom of God is in your midst. The kingdom of God is within you. So he teaches us to pray, your kingdom come. And in Matthew 6, he adds on to that, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We've already been reminded in this prayer that God is in heaven. And now it's like praying, let up there come down here. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I mentioned last week, this prayer that Jesus teaches us, it teaches us to want what God wants. Or the way we worded it last week was to bend our wants towards God's wants. Not necessarily what we want and the way we see life going, but what God wants for us. What is God's will for our lives? We see Jesus live this out when he's praying in the garden in Luke 22. And before he's crucified, his request is, if you're willing, take this cup from me. But then what does Jesus follow that with? Not my will, but yours be done. That was what was most important to Jesus in his life and his ministry, was not his will, but God's will. So he teaches us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Even the Apostle Paul definitely picks up on this. We see this in his letters. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul has a thorn in his flesh a thorn in his side, and he says that he pleaded with the Lord three times 
for God to take that away from him? And the answer he got was basically no. God spoke to Paul and said, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. He wanted that thorn removed and he received a no. But what was most important was not my will, but your will be done. So this prayer reminds us that we need to think after God's thoughts. We need to want and desire what God wants and not always what we want. So the prayer moves from mission and from adoration into dependence. And the last part of this prayer, if you look at the first part of each line, he tells us, give us, forgive us, lead us, and deliver us. That our lives are utterly dependent on God. We come to God in adoration for who he is. We're praying our Father. We pray for mission for his kingdom to come, and we really anticipate that, and then we pray for dependence. So he says, give us this day our daily bread. If you're praying this prayer slowly, give us this day. That's one of Jesus' core teachings. In Luke chapter 12, verse 22 through 31, Jesus teaches for us not to worry about life, about what we're going to eat, what we're going to drink, what we're going to wear. But seek first his kingdom And all these other things will be given to you. But he tells us that each day has enough trouble of its own. So in the prayer that he teaches his disciples, give us this day. It's not give us for the rest of the week, give us for the rest of the month, give us enough until we're ready to retire and then beyond. It's give us this day. Praying the Lord's Prayer just this weekend has been a strong reminder in my own life of give us this day our daily bread. And when he mentions our daily bread, you know, we took communion this morning, and the bread represents the body of Jesus. And as he teaches us to give us this day our daily bread, it reminds us of the wilderness. When, when Moses brought the Israelites out of Egypt and into the wilderness for a time, they had to rely on God for their daily bread. So he teaches us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. But I was thinking, okay, if we pray this as Americans, we have so much. How often have we had to think, are we going to eat today? But I was thinking about our Mission Upreach crew that just came back from Honduras a few weeks ago. I've been to Honduras several times myself, the second poorest country on the Western Hemisphere And I've seen it firsthand. Imagine a family from Honduras praying the Lord's Prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. And they don't know if they're actually going to eat that day. I've met several Hondurans that eat probably every other day because that's all the food they have. So your life circumstances, where you're at when you pray this prayer, kind of makes a difference. And for us as Americans who have so much, maybe we could be an answer to someone's prayer. If someone's praying for daily bread and Jesus teaches us to feed the hungry, then we might just become an answer to someone's prayer. And then maybe the way that we look at this as Americans is, God, give us the grace to say enough is enough. Teach us to say no when the world entices us with so much 
so much food, so much indulgence in worldly things. There is just so much for us to indulge in. So teach us to say no. Just give us this day what we need. This prayer teaches us that. To desire what we really need and not to overconsume. And we're dependent on God for that. So give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Or some translations say, forgive us our sins, forgive us our trespasses. So up until this point for the Lord's Prayer, God has been the acting agent. God is the one doing the work. God is the one ushering in his kingdom. God is the one providing daily bread. But now we become the acting agent. We move into action because he says, not only do we ask for forgiveness, but we extend forgiveness. I mentioned last Sunday that sometimes when I would pray this prayer at night with my daughter, I would miss a part because I was praying for memory. But I think subconsciously I was skipping over this part of the prayer because I knew that I needed to be offering forgiveness to people in my life. So we're called to act when we get to this part of the prayer. Famous author C.S. Lewis once wrote, Everyone thinks that forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive. Do you agree with that? We love the idea of forgiveness, and if we're being humble, we realize we need forgiveness of sins. It sounds great until Jesus says, oh, by the way, we forgive others who are indebted to us. We forgive others when they sin against us. So God calls us to act. And praying through this prayer is a constant reminder that not only do I need forgiveness of my own sins, but I need to be extending forgiveness in my life. And Jesus does this on the cross. When he's hanging on a cross, he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Forgiveness does not come natural to us. That's why Jesus teaches us that we need to pray. That's why I think the Lord's Prayer is so important that we keep praying these words because otherwise our instinct is to get revenge and pay people back or gossip about them and tear down their name if they're tearing down our name. And so we just keep trying to one-up someone else. But when we pray this prayer, we're reminded to forgive and to extend forgiveness. And then that last line is, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. That word is either translated as evil or evil one. The Greek word is difficult to translate. So I put up there evil one. Lead us not into temptation. Which is an interesting request because when Jesus was led into the wilderness, the Spirit led him to be tested. You see in the Old Testament, God allowed Job to go through a time of trial. But one of the things that maybe we don't talk about that often, especially in our normal vocabulary, is spiritual warfare. But the Apostle Paul and Jesus, they lived in this world where they believed very much so in spiritual warfare. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul teaches us that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and the authorities and the powers of these dark forces. So this prayer kind of reminds, this part of the prayer reminds me of spiritual warfare. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. We are dependent on God. Not just for the physical things like daily bread, but we are dependent on God in this battle against Satan. 
The prayer begins with Father, our Father, and it ends with the evil one. So the bookends right there are God who we rely on and the evil one who we battle against. Now, traditionally, we know this prayer ends with, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever. Amen. And according to that little kid, it was, you may be seated also. That's how we normally end the prayer, not the you may be seated part. Now, in the earlier manuscripts that we have, you know, that part of the prayer is not in there. It's in some of our English translations, but it's not in others. It sounds a lot like, I believe it's First Chronicles chapter 29, verse 11, or maybe it's Second Chronicles 29, 11, the way that David ends his prayer. But as we're studying specifically through Luke chapter 11, as Jesus finishes these words that he teaches his disciples to pray, he keeps on talking about prayer. You know, Paul teaches us to pray without stopping, pray without ceasing. So the prayer doesn't stop here. Jesus keeps teaching about prayer. And we see in his own life that Jesus prayed other prayers. It wasn't just the Lord's Prayer that he went around reciting all the time. We see Jesus prayed other prayers. We see the apostles prayed other prayers. And we should say other words in our prayers also. But my argument again this morning is that not only should we say other prayers, but this prayer, the Lord's Prayer, should profoundly shape how we pray. And I think as a church tribe, as a church heritage, we've dismissed this prayer. Other churches say it, other denominations pray it, so we just don't do it at all. And we're missing out on something crucial. Discipleship 101, Jesus says, this is how you should pray. So it should shape the way that we pray. Last week, I had a few challenges for you, and I have another challenge for you this week. Not only should you, uh, am I challenging you to pray these words, word for word, or at least read over it slowly, but as you pray your prayers this week, as you offer your request before God, keep the Lord's Prayer right beside you, and use the Lord's Prayer as a guide as you pray. You know, in my home, we have two children and one cat. And there's a big difference between raising children and raising a cat. Uh, when, we, when both of our children were born, before they were born, we baby-proofed the house. Anybody else do this? And especially with our first child, you know, we're plugging in every little outlet. Uh, we got rid of all sharp objects, anything that could be a choke hazard. We set up a crib. We had a pack-and-play ready to go. We had this swing over here. We had pacifiers. And then we debated whether or not we should. You know, everything... It was going on in our lives. We had to reorient our entire lives over bringing home this baby. Everything changed for both of our children. But when we brought home the cat, we decided the cat's not coming inside, and we put food and water outside. And for me, that's the only thing that changed. Now, I had to change nothing else about the way that I live my life to bring home a cat. In fact, most of the time, I forget that we have a cat. My wife and daughter take care of it. But I was thinking about this prayer, and I thought, you know, even with discipleship, especially with this prayer, we kind of treat it more like the cat. Like it's just kind of there. Maybe it's kind of an extension of who we are, but it doesn't really change anything. But when Jesus invites us into this prayer, it's kind of like bringing home a baby. This prayer teaches us to reorient our entire lives around God. 
And I think we've underestimated that. So I want to lead us in this prayer right now, and then we'll offer an invitation that way. Whoever's saying the closing prayer, like Clint mentioned last week, is not going to feel pressured to say the Lord's Prayer. But let me say this prayer. Our Father who is in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. This morning as we conclude this part of our worship service, and we're going to have shepherds in the back. We'll have a shepherd up front with me. This is a great opportunity for you to grab a shepherd, set up a time of prayer. You know, we have a baptistry here. If you're wanting to follow Jesus and be baptized into Christ, I want you to know that's always an option. But this is an opportunity to respond, and let's stay in and continue singing.